Hi there, before I play my conversation with Jose, I would like to invite you once again to my social media pages. You can find me on Facebook as Vida Tennis and on the Insta at Vida Tennis Podcast. I hope you've had the chance to listen to other episodes. Even though each episode has been a total different vibe, I think there are definitely some common threads there about the life of a tennis or rackets professional and things we need to work on as an industry. By the way, what do you like to be called? I am so used to saying tennis professional and I always forget to say rackets professional. It's just a bit of a tongue twister in my opinion. Anyway, as I mentioned last week, I would love, love, love to hear from you. Feedback is my jam and I want to know what you think has been interesting or inspiring so far or really any questions or suggestions. My email is vitatennispodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to me. Lastly, a great way to support the podcast if you're enjoying it so far is to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. And even better if you can share an episode that you like with a friend or fellow professional. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Jose. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Vida Tennis, the podcast for those of us who eat, sleep, breathe tennis. My name is Jennifer Gelhouse, and I'm your host. Today, I am talking to Jose Benjumea. He is the head teaching pro at the Westmore Club in Nantucket and a visiting pro at the Hillsborough Club in Florida. He was a tennis director at Cape Henry Racquet Club in Virginia. Jose has over 40 years of tennis teaching experience. He has served as tennis director, facility manager, and high school tennis coach. His teaching career is rooted in Virginia Beach, which is where he started teaching after playing tennis at Old Dominion University. He will soon be publishing his first book, Own the Joint, a guide to knee replacements and tennis. And he's an avid competitor in tennis, pickleball, croquet, and cornhole. Welcome, Jose. Did I get all of that right? Yes, you did. I think you covered it. Okay, great. You got to tell us a little bit about this cornhole. I'm curious, where do you play cornhole? Is this at, at the clubs where you're teaching or is this like a separate thing? <laughs> it started in the barbecues, backyard and, you know, developed skills, got pretty good at it. Then I was curious and went into a tournament and I was really surprised by the sophistication of the tournaments. It's on on tablets. It goes into the internet. You get national rankings, international oh, rankings. What? So I was really amazed by it. And I realized how bad I was, but I was intrigued by building the skills. So I've been playing competitively for about a year and a half. You have lo local tournaments, you have regional, national events, and you you actually you get on the computer and you get and you get your points by your scores and stuff your rankings and your ranking goes it's automatic that after that night's tournament boom it's all in so it's computerized and all that so that's how I got started in that part of it. Oh, that's so fun! My husband is a he's a very good cornhole player, so I'm gonna tell him about that. <laughs> right, right here where I am in Sarasota, we have at least two events a week that I participate in that, that are tournament, they call them blind draws, and then regionals uh, once a month. At the end of this month, there'll be a regional. And so then that all gets you points and stuff for your national events. That's so cool. Well, let me know if you need a partner. My husband, I'm telling you, he's good. Okay. <laughs> he's only right. good for one, but he's very good. Where does he live? Where do you guys live? I'm, I'm here in Tampa, so I'm super close to okay. you. Okay. Tampa's <laughs> full of, they got tournaments like crazy up that way. Oh wow. Yeah. It's a hotbed. <laughs> so okay, let's get let's get back into, you know, our main love, our main sport, which is tennis. 
How did you get into a career in tennis? Was this something that you kind of planned or was it by chance? How did you get into the industry? Okay, I will tell you, first of all, how I got into tennis. I didn't start, I didn't pick up a racket till I was 19 years of age. I played oh, baseball. Wow. And I would just was, I just, it seemed like too easy of a game. It was a month before graduating from high school. I passed by the tennis courts and one of my friends, her boyfriend was playing. And I just, you know, asked him to play. And he, she asked me if I knew how to play tennis. I said, no, no, but I can play. You know, being an athlete and being arrogant kind of, yeah, made me that way. So, but I realized he, I got humble because this player was number one on the team. I got beat, love and love. And, but then I said, I'm going to get a lesson and come back. But I got intrigued when I went to take that lesson, how involved the game was. And then from it, I started to take lessons. And then from that part of it, I started, I, I after four weeks into lessons, I asked my coach, I said, how long did it take for me to be a complete tennis player? He said, five years, if you, you know, do your lesson once every two weeks and do four hours of practice. So what I did was I went and home, I said, well, what if I did 60 hours a week? I could take five years into one year. And that's what I did. I did. I postponed college for a year and decided just to work on tennis from a beginner. Wow. And after about 17 months, 18 months into it, playing tournaments and all that, I ended up as a walk-on at Old Dominion University, Division One, and made the top six. And so I played five, three, and eventually two number one doubles. So it, wow. it was a really, a really quick career. I just, I'm really good at just be redundant, just practice. I can do, I can do the things other people don't want to do. So that began it. Well, it was during one of those summers that I was, I was actually a student at a clinic, Butch Buckholes was given a clinic locally. And then what, an instructor actually was there for the parks and recreation, saw me and asked me if I wanted to teach. I said, I'm still learning the game. And so I decided to go ahead and, um, uh, accept her invitation to learn how to teach. And she taught me the Vandermeer method, progressive method, how to begin teaching. And so I went to teach and I taught that summer. And that's how it all began for me. And the coolest part about it all, Jen, was this. A month after I started teaching that summer, I she the the it was Mrs. Cummings. She asked me, she goes, have you gone down to City Hall to, to take care of your paperwork? And I said, what paperwork? She says, well, you got to do W-2s and stuff. And I said, you get paid for this? And I said, and she goes, yes, you get paid. That's it. And she goes, you, you'll get $11 an hour. Back then, the minimum wage was $2 or $2.20. Yeah. I said, oh, okay. Then I knew I was on to something because if I was willing to do it for free, but now you get paid for it, I felt that that was already a sign. And that's how it started for me there. And then the biggest part, Dr. Dave Young, it was after I finished my college, my father was a CPA. My father worked, had, a, had a, his own firm and I was going to go work for him. But it was a doctor, Dr. Dave Young, who actually encouraged me. He, he said, you're, 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 not a, you're not an accountant, you're, you're a teacher. And so he actually encouraged me for this big opening that was in Virginia Beach to, to apply for it. I did just more to appease him. And eventually I did get the position and I said, wow, I'm really troubled because I'm supposed to work for my father. He's going to be really upset. Well, it turns out that he goes, just tell him you'll be there for three years and then you'll be done. Well, I was at this club for 19 years. That's really how my teaching career really began. I had just several people who believed in me in the sense that my abilities were to teach. And so, and teaching is my, 
my favorite thing to do. I, I taught college. I also have a work in, in applied linguistics. So I taught English composition at a community college. So, and I enjoyed that a lot, but I could do both tennis and, 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 and teach English. So I ended up dropping the English and yeah. just been true to tennis since, since then. That is, that is so cool. You know, I thought that I got a late start into tennis, but you definitely have me beat because I started, I started tennis when I was 11, which I think, you know, to today's standards, that's yeah. a little bit late for if you want to play college, right? So I started as a beginner from 11 years old, and I actually started playing college tennis when I was 16. I came, I'm from Venezuela, so I came here to play college tennis when I was 16. So I had a very short junior career, but kind of like you, I found myself in the game later in my life, but really fell in love with it in love, partly maybe obsessed with it, where, you know, all I wanted to do was play tennis. And, mm -hmm. and I, I never saw myself teaching tennis. I never knew that it was even going to be a possibility for me. And then after graduation and, and, you know, I was doing research and doing other things, I missed tennis so much and I started coaching and, and then it just kind of pulled me back in. I realized that it's something that I really love, but it's funny how, we just don't sometimes don't consider this to be a career because I think the perception sometimes is that it's just kind of a fun thing people do. You don't really see it as a job. And and sometimes people don't even see clubs as a as a business, right? Because right. of the same reasons. And and this is a business, right? You gotta you gotta be making money to to stay in business and to be there. And you know, that's some of the things that I think it'd be kind of challenging at times when we're in the tennis industries to get that level of professionalism and, and seriousness because that's kind of the perception. So yes, yeah, that that's really interesting. And so, what is your what would you say is your favorite thing about teaching? Since what you love is teaching, what is your favorite thing about it? It, it, it we all as t as teachers we gravitate to certain things, and in my case, I think. For me, it's strategy. I'm basically a double strategist. And it came about at the club that I first went to. We had 900 people passing through the club from USTA leagues. And I started teaching the, the doubles teams. And it, it was really in college that I learned that I didn't know how to play doubles. So I became a student of it because I, I got beat times when I thought I shouldn't have gotten beat. But I, I became a student of the doubles game and I liked it. And because I had such a late start in tennis, I felt that I had to be more cerebral than others. Others could hit better than I could, but I had to figure out how to outsmart them. Yeah. So that led to doubles. And, and I really, in our area, I'm one of those teachers that if you come to me, you want a forehand lesson, work on a forehand. If I think there's a pro that teaches it better than I do, I send you to that pro. And I think there has been that case where other people would, other pros will send, hey, Jose is the doubles guy. Go see him. He will go ahead and straighten you out. And I'm, I think my abilities are in being able to take a 3-0 tennis player to 3-5 to 4-0 to 4-5. Because that's what happened when you're at a club for 19 years and you have students that are three O's. You have to figure out how to get them to three, five, how to get them to four and things like that. So it I, it helped me build the strategic progressions for for the adult tennis player. And so doubles is really that's my my. In fact, that's the, to Nantucket last year when I was invited to be there. It was really for that main reason, to because they're they have from nine to twelve in the morning. It's just doubles clinics. We have like sixty ladies, seventy ladies. 
So it's more about how to present a doubles strategy session and, you know, be to the appropriate to the level, you know, yeah. the three O's and three five. So I think that's where my abilities are and for the most part. Yeah. I love, I love teaching doubles too, but another interesting point to make, I think is that sometimes we think that if you're, if you're a really good player, then you're a really good teacher, which it can certainly be true, but it's not always true. Right. Sometimes you can be an excellent player and not a very good communicator, or you can just like break down the information simply enough for people to follow and understand. So you're not a good teacher. And sometimes you have players or instructors, tennis professionals that don't have the best playing background. They, they didn't play professionally. Maybe they played college or they started late in life. So they didn't have like a super impressive junior career or anything like that, but they're amazing at teaching somebody how to play and they have a good personality and you know, they're an excellent teaching pro. So that can be tricky when you're hiring a pro. I was talking to Kathy Woods actually last week and we were talking about this because you look at a resume and you're like, wow, this, this, this guy or this girl has such an impressive playing background. They must be a great teacher and not the case. <laughs> right. <clears throat> One of the things that has, that has driven me is accountability and empathy. You know, these people come and they take up, they take an hour of their lives. They maybe get babysitters. They make so many arrangements to be there with you mm -hmm. that you just are accountable to that, to them for that hour. So you become, you, you care about them and you care about their ability to get them to another level, which means that you got to get better as a teacher all the time. So that's really my, what's motivated me always is when you come out, I'm just honored the fact that you're taking your time to come see me to learn tennis or whatever in, in that area. So I, that part is just that I'm grateful for it. And I'm also always, always aware of it. And so that's what I think keeps me teaching and, you know, and it works out for both the student and the teacher. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So are there any things that you have found challenging throughout your career? Anything that maybe you're still continuing to work on to this day. I mean, you have so much experience, so you've probably mastered teaching, but maybe something that you struggle with at the beginning that you had to really work on as, a, as an instructor? Yes, yes. The fact that the fact that I might be right about something and a student might not agree that's really the way to go, it's not about being right, but trying to find the language to convince them to do it instead of trying to assert your knowledge on them that's the initially there was a thing I said gosh why aren't they listening to me I I really know what I'm talking about and I said oh my gosh and at first I would go you know I, I would have to justify I said I, I've taught you know 40,000 of you guys I already know and I've been there I'm just trying to get you across that bridge come so it turns out that it's not really it, it's more psychologically involved than that it's got there's a reason why they they can't seem to do what you're asking and then there's a reason so I've learned over time to be able to get in that person's world and because they all, they, people take lessons or they come to you for many reasons. Some is to maintain their game. Some is because that's the day they meet with their other friends for lunch. So that's their social hour, hour and a half for tennis, and then they go and play. So they they come for many reasons to actually do a tennis lesson. And so, and some come to improve and 
do that. So you have to figure out what, you know, get to know them and get and how to approach their, their needs. So mm-hmm. that always has been a challenge for me because I guess if there's only one frustration I ever have with a student is that they, they undersell themselves. They're, they're capable of way more than they say they are. And I'm just trying to push them into these areas, which is on, you know, uncomfortable zones and so that has always been a challenge. And sometimes I go, you know, maybe I shouldn't care that much for the student, but I can't help it. I, I do. And so I just have to figure out ways as a teacher, find the language, find the way to get them comfortably into these areas. So that's probably my challenge in my whole career. Yeah, I I totally understand that. I know where you're coming from with that. And something that has helped me kind of have more compassion for people because that's what it comes down to, right? Is compassion is, well, one is, you know, let's, I'm terrible left-handed. I don't know. I'm I'm a righty. So I don't, I can't do anything with my left hand. So one of those, one of the things that I do is go out and do things left-handed and just realize how foreign everything is to your body. Mm -hmm. And and that's how being a beginner feels like. Um, And then the other thing is, that this is our bread and butter. We're in this environment all the time. Tennis is our thing. We've been in it for years, but somebody that just joined, they might be really intimidated. They, they don't know the environment. They, they're not very confident in what they're doing. And one of the best things to kind of relate to that is to put ourselves in in those situations, right? So learning a new sport, you know, like let's say you're learning golf. You, you're going to feel exactly what those people feel like, or le- even learning a new language. Like right now I'm learning French, right? And I had to do some like Zoom lessons and having to speak in a new language and with different people, it's it's really intimidating. So I think as a teacher, is it's really good to put yourself in those situations, whatever it is that you want to learn something new, totally different from tennis to kind of relate to that. Do, do you think that that's the case for you too? Yes, it is. In fact, I, I like to play tournaments. I'm competitive, but I also like to, I mean, I, I, I feel nervous. I get just as nervous as a student gets nervous for a first lesson, whatever. So yeah. I try to figure out how to, how to manage it so I can, I can empathize with them in that area. And that's why in croquet, pickleball, in fact, pickleball, I played my first singles tournament about six weeks i never have played singles ever 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 and then i went into a tournament to play it and talking about nervous and new experience i did well with it i ended up winning my category but it was just completely nerve-wracking because i didn't know what to expect but then i know that gives me it makes me empathetic to that experience so i am like that too i have it's a habit of trying new things one curiosity, but the other is I do learn, I do know what you were feeling when you were taking that lesson. Yeah, so. exactly. And so what about the business side of our job? I mean, you obviously are very passionate about teaching tennis, but are you equally passionate or do you not like at all the more administrative side of maybe being a in a leadership role, like being a director, maybe even head pro? How do you feel about that part of the job? The best analogy I can give you is a person who is a teacher, let's just say high school teacher, elementary, they go into teaching because they like it. They get better at it, better. Eventually, they go into administrative and they like that part of it, too. They go there. But then eventually they're teachers. They go back to teaching. In my case, 
I did the tennis directorship facility. Man, I liked it. I like mentoring assistant pros to get them ready for professional. That was very enriching for me. And but overall, even when I was a director and I was cutting my hours from teaching, I was itching to be out on the court. So you know, eventually, I knew I would head back into teaching. So administrative was something that came with the job. I wasn't the, the more I delegated to good people. That's the key. Having a great staff that will do the things that you're not good at, because really, my core competence is really being on the tennis court. That really is it. So it's a matter of having the right team. And I was lucky with that when I was a facility manager and tennis director, even at the Cavalier Golf and Yacht Club, I had some great staff that were not there looking at the clock, punching in, punching out. They cared about the program. They cared about me succeeding and all of it. So that made it easier to take care of that part of it. Because administratively, it, it's not my strong suit, but it, I, I, I mean, I do it because you have to do it and you get better at it. But in the end, teaching just was my... That's and that's what I am now. I'm more of a teaching. I'm, and I'll be at as a head direct as a head tennis pro. I'll be in charge of mentoring the young pros that are coming in, especially those that need to learn how to talk to ladies and doubles, the, the doubles lingo, and things like that. So I'm looking forward to that this summer. So I'll be heading into that role, but on a that kind of mentoring as opposed to the administrative, you know, the paperwork and all that stuff. Yeah, that's very humble of you to to say that. And that takes incredible awareness to, to just know what you're good at, what you like also, because I always say, just just like we were talking about, just because you're the best player doesn't mean that you're going to be the best at instructing. Mm -hmm. Just because you're the best instructor at a club doesn't mean that you're the best person to be a director because it's a totally different skill set and you may not enjoy it. I happen to love the administrative side. I, I like both. I like a good balance of both. I, I love teaching, but I don't want to do it all day long. Like I'd rather have a mixture. I like to have conversations with a lot of the members. I feel like sometimes when you're teaching, you're kind of limited to just the people that you're teaching. I like to be more in that in like that leadership administrative role type, but it doesn't mean that everybody is. And I know a lot of pros that like you, they're like really good at teaching and they just love teaching and they can be on the court for, for a long time. And they're just happy to, to do that, you know, all day long. So that's, that's great. I think it's really important to know that and to, and to know that from an early, from an early age, I guess. But I think you also have to experience it to know if you like it or not. <laughs> exactly. I think you have to go through that aspect of it. And I really enjoyed the tennis directorship tremendously. But I I noticed I was, you know, I was being pulled away from some things that I know needed to be done. I pulled in the area of the teaching or the, that kind of thing. So and the mentoring. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to your... 20 year old self just starting to teach maybe you've been teaching for three four years what would be some advice that looking back now that you would give to yourself i would have hired an administrative assistant i would have made it part of my budget i believe that i could have afforded to do it but i didn't i was more into just you know back then just really the bottom line was more important to me in a way 
but I would have hired an administrative assistant that would have taken care of a lot of my uh, administrative duties that I would do, staying up till 11 at night, a lot of hours that I couldn't spend devoting to writing. The writing of the book, really, back then, 25 years, people were saying, you need to write a book, you need to write a book, because I teach metaphorically a lot by analogies, and, you know, and I always think a lot that tennis is a metaphor for life, and so I always use a lot of analogies to to everything, to marriage, to graduation, to just trans transitions in life, transitions in tennis. And so I would do a lot of that. So, but I think I would have had my first book written years ago if I'd have had a minute. I, I would have been able to develop other skills that are also about me. Uh, I like writing and I like expression, expressing. And so I think that's one thing I would have just hired that administrator to free me to do these other things that were tennis related, but like the writing and the publishing, getting involved with the USPTA, PTR, more in, in writing articles and publishing, things like that. Yeah, yeah. I think that is important for sure. Going back to a little bit of teaching, what do you think is the most common mistake you see? I'm guessing you work with a lot of beginners, but correct me if I'm wrong, but in general, recreational country club play is a lot of beginners, but what would you say is the most common mistake that you see? The most common mistake I see is, I, I use an analogy again. If you go get a, if you're going to go get a dress from a custom, from a, getting custom, it's going to be appropriate to your shape and your height, everything, right? And the big, and so if I went to get a suit tailored, I'm, I need, I need a tailor that suits it to me. Well, I see as tennis play, tennis coaches, tennis teachers, they don't adapt to the student. They have knowledge to share, but I don't think they really understand the makeup of that student by the questions they need to ask. You know, it's kind of a little interview, especially if the first, hey, how are you doing? Da, da, da. You get a sense of the person. And after a little while, you just have to adapt your teaching style to that person, personality, even lingo, even what you might say to a 50-year-old beginner as opposed to a 12-year-old beginner or a 8-year-old beginner. So I think the most common mistake is that we just have one methodology to teach and we just apply it to everything. And then you wonder, why aren't they getting this? Why aren't they? Well, we're not really talking that person's language. Like, for example, I tend to do this. If I see, if I don't have a lesson with a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, I Google and find out what is the current, what cartoons do they watch? What 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 pop stars, what music did they listen to? So when I go, I think I can right away just talk their lingo, you know, the six-year-old. And then, you know, the, of course, I'm more accustomed to the the, the, the senior citizen, much older. I, I know what their I know what their needs are, what their wants are, what their aspirations are, but the little, you know, so that's part of to me the the thing you have to do so you can relate to them. And once you have that, then it's easier to do that. So I think teachers just need to be more aware of that. Not this is my method and this is what I'm going to do. It, it's going to be, you got to be fluid. You, you, you got to be in teaching a forehand, teaching a, anything. You got to be fluid. Like I will never teach a 65 year old how to do a loop forehand. It's just, I'm not going to do, that's going to be good for a 25, 30 year old who's just starting out, who's going to play more tennis. But if you're only going to play once a week, I will give you the most simple basics that you can have to play the game. I'm not going to give you the whole spill. If you're going to play five days a week, then that's a different story. Yeah, that's so important. And sometimes you 
you start with someone that's doing one lesson a week, but you hope that they're going to get into it. But it's so hard sometimes. I do it still to this day to remember, like, make it super simple. They don't have to look like a modern forehand right, right now. They they can just be even just bumping the ball to, to start with. Focus on making clean contact. <laughs> Some, something super simple instead of like the full like top spin swing with, with those cases, right? Because we all want to teach the best, but that might not be the best for that person at that point in time, right? So right. that is really important. Along those lines too, as, as tennis professionals, whatever you got to make beginners or whatever level, they have to succeed at what you are giving them. Meaning that if it's a matter of bump, like getting the ball over the net, just bump it. And then that's success. Sometimes we tend to do an exercise that is beyond their capability. I've seen it where the person, the beginner is hitting 15, 20 balls into the net and nothing is changing other than, Oh, you need to go low to high, blah, blah, blah. And all that. And I said, wow, it needs that needs to be diminished to a certain level that it becomes success to get it over the net. So, you know, like a five-year-old, I usually start them with a little volley because they know they can get that over the net. So right away they say, I'm playing tennis, I get the ball over the net. So that's part of, you know, that part of, as a mistake I see sometimes, it's just we don't, we don't, the, the exercise doesn't match the skill set. Yeah. And sometimes we, we got to set them up for success right off the bat somehow. And, and get them to feel good about what they're doing out there. Yeah, 100%. And so tell us a little bit about your book. Tell us a little bit about how you take care of yourself. I mean, you've had obviously a successful career. You've been in the industry for so long teaching. I'm sure you've come across injuries or maybe not. Maybe you've been really lucky. But how do you take care of, of your body, your mind, as a tennis pro, and then tell us about your book as well, obviously, because it's it goes along those lines as well. Okay. It, I have had knee surgery. I had a meniscus tear. And this was about a year and a half after I finished my college career. And this was already the, the turning point for me as far as taking care of myself. Mm. I didn't realize that after you finish college, you have to still keep in shape to play competitive tennis. So a year or so into it, I was getting out of shape to play at a certain level. And it was in a tournament that I ended up having the knee accident and ended up ha having to have knee surgery. But then the doctor actually who did the knee surgery, who encouraged me to play, he's the guy who's my surgeon as well. He says, you know, you have to be in shape to be playing competitively and you have to be in shape to actually teach you. you it's It's different. You have to be. So that began for me the process of, a daily a constant I, I never not I, every day there's something that I do to strengthen myself whether it's a gym stretch exercises always researching some Tom Brady kind of exercises also just because I see longevity in him so I basically from a physical standpoint I or I don't really go into an event unless I am prepared for it. I've done the work the month prior to going to the gym, getting my exercises taken care of, everything to be able to compete. I don't do it because I realized that accident I had in 1980, a long time ago, that that was my lesson to do that. So that, and then mentally, I'm always the same thing, preparing myself each day to to embrace the day and how can I be, especially on tennis court, how can I be a better tennis teacher? That's always a daily exercise for me. And emotionally, you know, being able to, because, you know, you, you could lose your, you could lose your um, 
patience on the court. You could do a lot of things. So I daily have my little few minutes of exercise of being a patient person, empathize, compassionate, things like that, especially with, with teaching. Because And then that's a constant. And of course, nutritionally, I just have always, as an athlete, you're always making sure that you're 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 eating healthy you got to present yourself in such a way that you can you can give a good lesson or you can be a good example to a tennis community about the lifestyle you lead and so that relates to really highly to the book own the joint and the genesis of the book i i would have students come into the court with knee replacements and I would be nervous because I would go, wow, I hope I don't hurt them. I wonder what they can do, cannot do. So I would always ask them, hey, what did the doctor say? What what kind of boundaries do you, did it give you? And they would always go, oh, play doubles and take it easy. And so that was a common generic thing. And I just started after a while, after, I don't know, a year, year and a half into it, I said, this doesn't seem really that right to me. This because I see things on the court that are actually problematic. So I checked with physical therapists, and there's one orthopedic surgeon that I checked with. He I used to teach his children tennis. I said, This is what I see on the court. And I goes, Well, those it's not healthy and all that. So I'm wondering why aren't doctors telling patients this? And of course, it led to the fact that, well, tennis, they, they don't they don't play tennis, they don't understand all the stressors that, that are happening on the court particularly rotational, the torque, the torque, because we t- tennis is a sideways game, but you have to turn, do all these things. So I said, hmm. So then I was, he encouraged, write a book. You, you got to get the message out. So I started it two and a half years ago during COVID time, and actually a little before COVID. And the, the motivation for the book is I've seen all these people with knee replacements, and I, I can see it in their eyes that they want to continue to play tennis. They do want to do the best. And I just feel like, oh, my gosh, they need help in terms of education that to be able to take care of these knee joints. They, no one is, they don't have the specific knowledge that's required if you're going to step on a tennis court, pickleball court, and even golf. So that was the beginning of the of the the book and own the joint the name of the book i got that because you know you want to own your you you want to own the joint be responsible for it meaning it, the industry has moved is moving the healthcare industry is moving from a patient doctor relationship to a client doctor relationship especially in elective surgery and the health industry is promoting that they want people to be more educated about their knees and the replacement process and just know what to ask for. And so all of those things just kind of led me to to doing that, to I said, well, you know what? And I tell this to even tennis students that come to me, if they're coming, they're visiting, they're, they're going to travel. I said, well, when you go back, this is the questions you need to ask your tennis pro. Because I always ask, you know, hey, what would you like to work on? They go, oh, you, whatever, it doesn't matter. You, you, you decide. Well, I'd like for that tennis student to be able to ask specifically for what they struggle with so that then I can boom right away go at it so I even do it with my tennis students I'd say well listen when you go back get them to practice on this part of it get them to do this part about the about your forehand or ask for this okay you don't need this part you need this part and then that way they go and they have something they can 
they can provide to their tennis pro. So they're contributing to their own lesson. And that's the same thing with the on the joint. Yeah. So is it mostly, would you say, technical things that are doing, that players are doing wrong? Yes. Yes. The First of all, it starts out, you need to go to a doctor. In the book, I do have in there how you choose the doctor. Does the doctor treat specifically tennis players? Because if he does, then he's got an experience. See, doctors are efficient. We all are. We do the same thing all the time because that's the easiest way to do it. So you might get the generic knee joint that everybody else is getting because it's going to be the quickest. But is it the best for you? We You don't know that. You have to figure that part out. You have to ask. You have to do this. So it, that's the part that to empower the person to be able to do that. So that's really the beginning of it. But then what it comes down to really simple things, Jen, Part six of my book is actually how it's the new normal with Jose. It's because people think when they get a knees, oh, I'm back to normal. I said, no, it's a new normal. There's things you still have to do to make this work for you. In part six, I actually cover the tactics, the strategies and things you need to be able to have a healthy experience on the court. From basically in simple terms, the close stance, which is really kind of an old, the generic, that was what was taught to the baby boomers long ago. The close stance on a forehand is going to create a lot of stresses on the left knee. That Because if they close the stance and they turn and they have too close of a stance, their bodies are turning, their, their feet aren't turning, but the knee is. And so that is a big issue right there. And on the backhand, not so much because baby boomers didn't learn two-handers, but then there's some that did. They're in the 50s or whatever. They they have a close stance on that backhand. They're going to have issues with a right knee. So just a close stance in those situations is not. So I always push for the open stance. In fact, I had a lesson with a 78-year-old a week ago, and that's what we did. Open stance, open stance, open stance. Just There's so little stress to the joints in doing that. Another area is on the serve. You know, we learned to serve sideways. Our left foot, our leading foot is parallel with that baseline. But, you know, in the younger days, you jumped and then fell in perpendicular on the court with the left foot. Now those people aren't jumping. So they're sideways and they're turning to serve and they're twisting the knee twist. So that's an open stance. Like Nadal. Nadal has an open stance when he actually serves. That left foot is almost straight ahead. So it's it's more that type, those simple things that will take care of it. And then... The part that's huge for me is this. You know, the, the tennis industry has ignored the senior tennis player. The juniors have smaller cores. They have the red balls. They have the green dot balls. We we accommodate those because of their their bodies. They're, they're, they're little. They need a light ball and all this. We accommodate. Senior tennis doesn't have any. We still, the, an 80-year-old and a 30-year-old have to cover the same court. Yeah. That, that's kind of unfair so how does the 80 year old shrink the tennis court and i do that i i explain that in 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 the book and there'll be videos that accompany the book as well so it's basically you gotta the the tennis injury isn't going to shrink the court for you we're not going to have smaller courts for if you're over 75 you got to do this yourself which means Instead of playing outside the baseline, you're going to be inside the baseline. You're going to have to learn how to half volley. You're going to, and you're not going to transition very far. You know, it's, it's, you want to be able to hit a ball, reach one, but you can't play behind the baseline. You can't play up on top of the net. You have to go to these medium, medium areas. So I go over that part. Golf industry, they, they're really good at 
they're pushing it forward, so to speak. They seniors can tee from di from different positions than ladies and men. They make it easier to reach the green. Okay, yeah. and they even have some some initiatives. If you're disabled, if you had if you had shoulder surgery, whatever, well, you can tee off from this area. So they're making it easy for you to have fun on the golf course. Tennis it hasn't done anything for the senior player. In fact, I hear that every now and then. You know, they're ignoring us. Why don't they give us this da, 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 or promote the green dot ball if you're over 85 years old? Because those bounces, you know, if you have trifocals, they, they can't see the ball. Mm -hmm. So that part is like, for me, like, mm, I, I, nobody's talking about it. This, this, I don't hear anything that much about it. And and I and I work with a lot of them and I, I see them, how they're close. And here's the other part, Jen, it's kind of sad. They go, I can't, I'm too, I can't get to the balls anymore. I can't do this, can't do that. I'm going to go to pickleball. So what happens- That's what I was just going to say is we're going to lose them to pickleball. <laughs> yes. And what's happening is they're going from clay courts onto cement, hard courts. Yeah. More, more of a, pickleball is fun. It's a violent game. It's quick. It's got this other stuff. So we're moving them into an area where I don't think it's healthy for them to go, especially if it's a hard or cement. If they have a clay court, yeah, that's that's a little different story, perhaps. But as far as so, it's moving them into an area for the wrong reason. Why don't we figure out a way to keep them on the tennis court? We got to figure a way to to do that. We we just we have the green dot juniors have a different size court. We we why don't we have anything for seniors or promote anything like that on a on a national initiative for 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 the senior player because they they would be willing to do that because they they like tennis and like hitting a tennis ball they they enjoy it the lady I was had lessons with she says I really enjoy hitting the ball when I can get to it you know and I said oh, how can I get you to the more balls yeah oh my gosh so you made so many great points there I have a really good memory, I guess, that I will never forget this. I I used to teach at the Mason Club in, in New York, in the Hamptons. It's a grass court club. And I was working with this older gentleman. I mean, he had to be upper, middle to upper 80s, I think. And, you know, on the grass, I don't know if you've taught on the grass, you have to be, you have to get to the ball like right away because it bounces. Yeah. And it doesn't rise, right? Like you have to be right there at the balance if you want to have a chance at, at hitting that ball. So if you hit a drop shot, it's like, forget it. So I was doing a lesson with this older gentleman. We're hitting cross courts. And every now and then I would hit a ball that was somewhat short, you know, just inside the, maybe the service box. And he just was not able to get to that. You know, I like, I, I would have to like rally with him, but hit it right to him. But every now mm -hmm. and then, miss you know and and hit a little bit short and it was so funny because he wouldn't even I mean he wouldn't even move to it but he was just like yes keep doing that to me I need to get to that ball I need to get to that ball and I'm like dude you can't like he he could barely walk yeah you know? so I felt so bad but at the same time I was like that is so cute you know but yeah he should have a way of of competing and and in a, in a more fair situation you know i exactly. so i hear what you're saying it makes total sense to me and yeah i think that that's one of the main reasons why we're losing people to pickleball is because it it's a lot smaller so it looks 
visually mm-hmm. like, oh, now I have to cover less court. You know, I take four steps and I'm at the net, right? But yeah, like what you're saying is true. The the hardcore, and I've tried playing pickleball and clay and it just does not work. I mean, <laughs> maybe at some clubs it does if you roll yeah. the board a thousand times and basically make it into a hardcore, but you just don't yeah. get a decent balance at all on a clay court. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that that's such a that's such a good point. And then I also wanted to ask you following up on the technical side for the the knee issues with the stances, I've heard, I remember years ago, that the open sense can be somewhat problematic also for the hips. So I think it's good to have a combination of like open and semi-open stances. But yeah, the old school, like fully closed stance with the foot basically across your body that does, I can definitely see how that just puts so much pressure on, on your knee. So have you basically been reteaching people that, that are, after they've had a knee problem, basically how to change their stance and, and how successful have you been at making that change? <laughs> yes. The, initially it began for me, the open stance and become become really passionate about it was I was teaching this lady. She was in a close stance. She was in her fifties. She just had knee surgery, not a knee replacement, just a knee surgeon meniscus thing. And she was afraid to step into the ball with her left foot. She was right-handed. She was just afraid. And and I was encouraging the close stance. And she goes, I just don't want to step because I might hurt my leg. She just was very, very tentative. So I said, hmm, let's do this. This is when the the beginning of open stances, right? And so I said, let's do this. How about if you don't step, just stand there almost facing the net. Let me feed you a ball. And I fed her a ball. She hit it. And I said, hey, it's going to be a little closer to you since you're not stepping into a contact point, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, wow, this is pretty good. So then I said, well, how about if you just turn your hips just a little bit, you know, semi, semi close. Oh, so she did, and she was hitting the ball. And after a few minutes, I was just said, she was hitting the ball really well. I said, Jose, could I do this really like regular? I said, well, it, it is it is a method of doing it. It's an open stance. And she went and she goes, I want to do this. And she, from then on, she just went to an open stance. So that gave me the idea of, you know what? She did it and she had her 50s and she did it and it was amazing. She had reason to. It was just, she, she, she wasn't like I had to talk her into it. She just had to do it. She wanted to, and she saw results right away. And that's what I did. Like, for example, the, this lady that I was, I taught last week, it's all going to be dependent on the flexibility, just mobility issues of the person and also kind of shape they're in and all of that. So Mm -hmm. like this person is really not in great shape. So it's going to be pretty much an open stance, almost open without any kind of loading, hip loading and things like that, just to get her to be able to play in because she's playing now. I got her playing inside the baseline three feet. And so it's half volley stuff. It's volleys out of the air. It's all of these things. And then trying to get her to anticipate a little bit. If a ball goes wide, expect it wide back, you know, those kind of things just to get her going. And then who knows if she gets going and gets going, they go, ah, let's work on that open stance a little bit. Just try to start to refine it, but try to keep for because they all do the close, I mean, they do the close stance. They just move that leg over yeah. there and then they're stuck. And not only knee issues, but hip issues and lower back issues from. Yeah, absolutely. And you work, it sounds like you work with adults, you, you work with kids, you work with all different ages. Do you see any, any differences between 
I mean, obviously there are differences, but we were talking a little bit before, before we started recording about just the general interest from the younger generations coming in. You were talking about how you are seeing that these younger generations are more interested in, in just maybe doing more of a fitness type class, doing more fun games on the court, more so than going out and playing a doubles match. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. The trend, is, we, as, we as teachers, you know, we, we love the game. We like the doubles game, the singles game. And as you mentioned, doubles games and singles games tend to be a little more competitive than the social games, okay? And so a lot of a lot of the younger generations seem to want to have the games not only for their workout, not only because of the sociability of it, all of and it's fun. And when it's the the facilitator is a tennis pro with personality, blah blah. blah it just means like a, a fun hour and a half. I have heard this though, and this is from parents as well. Doubles is more competitive. There's two against two. There will be a winner and there will be a loser in this situation. Some people really have a hard time competing. They don't want to have that kind of binary win-loss thing where these other games, you do have a winner loser, but it gets blended. It's just a different thing. It's a team. It's more people involved. So, because I've heard this comment, I really enjoy the game because it is a little competitive, but it doesn't matter whether you win or lose. That's what they say. It doubles, they'll say, you know, you got a winner, you got a loser. This is, there's a definite, so it's more magnified, this competitive thing about winning and losing. So I think part of it also has to do with that. Some people don't want to, don't want to, my daughter is like that. She doesn't want the pressure of competing. She's yeah. one of those that would do the one of fives and the, all the games and all this. Hey, let's go play doubles. What if I lose to her? You know, it's a reflection on me as a tennis player, blah, 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 and all this stuff. So it, there are more implications involved. And I think we have to consider those things there or teach people how to compete. So they deal with that pressure. I'm more in that camp to be able to teach them how to compete because you're competing for a job. You're competing for a relationship. You're competing everything. You compete in life. Yeah. Just that's part of it. To me, tennis is a great way to learn how to handle competition. And it's it's great for learning how just to deal with things in life that you have to compete with. And if we kind of shy away from that, I don't know. It, it's just tennis to me is such a great way to do that. I feel like it's helped me in my life and as a competitor, you know, you're competing. Yeah. When I first started tennis, I would say just when I first started, I think when I was a junior player, even even by the time I finished high school, I have to admit, I was doing daily clinics. You know, the way we trained was basically two hours of tennis, one hour of fitness every day. But I was that typical kid where I loved the training. I loved playing games. And when the coach was like, okay, go out there and play a set. I was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to because, and it was because of that pressure, but that is something that you have to work out as a tennis player, as a true tennis player, you have to figure that out. You have to go through that process. Yes. And I did. And it depends. I think where you're working at now, they're very wealthy clubs. They're very social clubs. And so maybe I think that's why you're seeing that. 
Uh, one, they have the money to spend on clinics, however many clinics they want to take. Money is not an issue, right? So that's a factor. Somebody else in in a in a public facility, they they might have a budget that a certain amount of money that they're willing to spend a month or whatever on tennis. And then the other thing is handling losing. Sometimes at these wealthy clubs, they're not used to hearing no, just as much as they're not used to losing, right? So it's it's I don't want to say an ego thing, but it you know they're not they're just not used to that feeling of yes. It's hard. It's harder to handle, and so I think that that's why maybe particularly at the clubs that that you've been working in, in the last few years that you're seeing that because I've seen it as well. But mm-hmm. when I go to different clubs, I see I see a little bit of a difference in that sense, and I think that those two things play play a role in there. That's a good point. I, I hadn't thought about it that way a little bit, but yes, I'm the, I'm the kind of person if you beat me six love six love. I will beg for your phone number and I beg, I'll just, until I finally get you, I will, I will be after you. Yeah. Same, same for me. I'm like, okay, can, can we like play again or can we play yeah. tomorrow? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yep. That's, that's me for sure. So what has been, I always ask this kind of towards the end is what has been your, the grand slam moment of your tennis life, meaning the best moment it can be of your teaching career or it could be playing competing however you want to answer and what has been the double bagel moment of your life so a lot of times people struggle to find the negative but i think it's it's a little bit interesting sometimes to 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 hear how people answer that so let's start with the grand slam moment of your of your tennis life mm-hmm. okay that was november of 1990 Oh my gosh, that's so specific. (laughs) Yes, I started my career full-time facility manager, tennis director in 1980. And I taught, you know, and I really was in it. In 1990, one of the things, there was a special person back then that I shared this with this person. One of the things that regrets in life, I never want to leave this world without having thanked the people who have really impacted me tremendously. And I lost track of the coach who gave me those two, three years of really great tennis and all that stuff that just changed my life completely, just lost track of them. Well, in 1990, it was a 10-year surprise party for me on the tennis courts. It was center court, and there were about 250 people there. They were all wearing white shirts at the time. And I was the caricature of me was me on this red bandana because I always wore a bandana when I taught back then. And as I walked in, I was just mesmerized by the, you know, I had no idea what it was about or anything like that. And in the crowd, this person said, aren't you going to say hello? And I, and I looked and the, the voice kind of just, I recognized it a little bit. And he goes, well, aren't you going to? And it turns out to be my coach who I had not seen since I started tennis. Oh. So. And that was an amazing moment. They found this coach, this the, the group of people in the area found him because they knew my idea about the regret. They found him. And so we had really a reunion of all the people who have been an impact in my life. Well, along the way, people share their stories. One person said, you, you, you know, you don't just teach tennis, Jose. I said, and I, I didn't know that I, that I did these things because you don't teach, you don't just teach tennis. You know, you saved my marriage. Your, your, my coming to you really helped me to see things the way they needed to be seen. 
And I had no idea what I said in those clinics, whatever it was. She goes, it just resonated with her. Others were the opposite. You know, I had the, I had the courage to leave a bad marriage. I gained the confidence. You gave it to me on the court. And it basically the person just, I could see that development in her as a player and how good she was getting, but it gave her confidence in other parts of her life. Social changes, her sphere of influence changed, everything. So, and then other people just, you know, how much they enjoy the fact that they they knew me from, you know, high school. They just enjoyed the fact that, and they were saying, you are so lucky to be doing something you love. That they it, that was kept coming up as a theme, and I said, you know, I'm just grateful to be here. That was my grand slam moment. Then, then I knew that I was in the right place. Yeah. Even yeah. as I even as I'm telling you this, I almost get tears in my eyes just from. I never forget that moment because I said, okay, that's my calling. That's where I belong, in whatever way it is that it's happening. I'm in, I'm teaching them more than tennis because some of these, by the way, there's a clinic that I had in 1980, my first clinic at the club, because I was worried I wasn't going to make any money. I was going to, you know, I said, this is really ridiculous, but that clinic went from 1980 to 2016. Yeah. 2016. And in the process of the four ladies, one was original, one had died, one turned 95 and she just couldn't do it anymore. And that, that. So it was so it was a, it was a bit a, a tremendous journey for me because they followed me to wherever club I went to they would go and things like that so it was I knew that I was teaching them more than tennis at the time I didn't know it and and I knew that I impacted them more than just tennis so you know it it just I knew that I was my as a tennis teacher I was really multifaceted without knowing it mm-hmm. so that was my my grand slam moment. I love that. That Thank you for sharing that because that is something that it's sometimes hard to remember is that we're not just there to teach you a forehand, you know, that's more the technical side. We're there to bring health into your life, you know, we're doing something that's good for you. But also a lot of times, and this is the part that I constantly have to remind myself of, is that this hour that they're spending with you, that might be the best part of their day, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they might be looking forward to the hour more than any other thing that they're doing that day. You know, the the rest of the day, they're they're working, they're dealing with issues. This is like their me time that they get to focus on something that they enjoy. And so just, just reminding myself of that really brings me motivation and a sense of purpose and a sense of humanity to teaching tennis because it's a it's a connection it's like it's just such an honor right to to be the person that somebody's choosing and not just choosing to spend time but also to spend money to to be with you that hour the best part of their their day so when I'm a little down my husband always says Jennifer make somebody's make somebody's day today make somebody's day today and that's that's one of my favorite things is like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to make your day better. I'm going to make your not just your tennis better, but we're here to bring you joy, basically, you know. So that's I love that you said that. So now that we had such a positive, beautiful moment, <laughs> let's get into the double vagal moment of your life. So anything that you're just like, oh, crap. <laughs> 
Uh, I think the double bagel of the moment for me, it, it really wasn't, a, it hasn't been a tennis experience per se, like a bad match or any, or bad season. I've never had one, I don't think. It, I, any, anytime you're in tennis, you can't have a bad day or a bad year. So I think my big, my double bagel is not staying in contact with all the people that really enrich my journey. That's my, that's my, that's probably the regret that I have had, which I'm, I've been working on to try to improve. So a double bagel for me, like, you know, just, just getting bagel was the, the, I got bagel because I didn't get to enjoy those relationships, you know, my bad for doing that. So it, it just includes, it includes not a lot, a lot of people. There's significant people that are, that are involved that, I was I did not keep a relationship with just neglect and and just lazy that I, and so I'm double bagel because I didn't get to the benefit of their relationships. Yeah, but you know it's never too late. You can always reach out to someone even if you haven't yes. talked to them in years. You know I think that's sometimes a little nerve wracking, but they might be thinking the same thing. So and, and you know what? Talking about that, one of one person in particular is Brian Kniff. He, I met him back in 2000. He, he, he was working at a club and they had built a tennis center. I mean, indoor, indoor. And I was at the Cavalier Golf and Yacht and there was an initiative to build an indoor there. And so I said, I'm going to go to Brian, introduce myself, got to meet him because I wanted to learn how he did it, get information to carry back to my club. And we ended up with an association. But then after that, Jen, we, he moved we didn't keep in touch. I liked him and all that, but we just didn't. And he was instrumental in my learning about the indoor facilities and stuff like that. Here's what's the funny part. You know, it's funny how Providence gives you another chance. I was at, at the Hillsborough Club where I am now. I was there four or five years ago. I went to the club. Oh, I was invited for a lunch at the club, one of the members there. So I uh, went to lunch. We went to lunch there. And when I went to lunch there, I said, wow, what a, what a charming club. The following year, I said, you know, I think I'm going to go and take my resume to the club and just see if they need anybody. Well, I take it, and the tennis director is Brett. And so, Brett Godet. And I said, Brett, here's a resume. If you need any help, you know, I'd like to. And he saw that I was from Virginia. He goes, oh, then you must. My head pro is from Virginia. I said, who is that? Brian Kniff. I hadn't seen Brian in years, years, years. So that kind of gave me the little end to become, because Brian vouched for me, I suppose. And so I ended up getting a chance with Brett. And so that led to what I do now, just from that little bit. So so Brian and I have had a chance to reconnect. We've been teaching side by side on a court, like this past four weeks, we were side by side, sharing stories, sharing knowledge. And I respect them highly as a tennis professional, as a person. He's wonderful. My goodness. <laughs> Great guy. Exactly. And so those are the people that, that others who I've been bageled by that I didn't, you know, carry. So I'm just happy to have that reconnect yeah. with him. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a great answer. And when does your book come out? In about 10 days, it'll be on, quote, it'll be on Kindle. And then a week or so or two after that, it'll be in print. Oh, that's wonderful. So that actually might match up to when this episode comes out. Okay. Uh, right around the time. So usually when I record an episode, it comes out 
two or three weeks later, just because I have like a little queue of, of people that I've talked to. Right. So, uh, that'll be wonderful. I'll make sure that you send me the link and we'll put it on the show notes and I'll put it on the, on the post when I, when I share this wonderful conversation that we've had. How can people find you if they want to talk to you? Do, are you on social media or? They can, they can go to Facebook or that real easy way is tenniswithjose at gmail.com. I will have a website up in about in a few weeks that will coincide with the own the joint. Okay, we'll make sure to share that as well. Certainly. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Jose. What an incredible conversation. I love talking to you. And thank you for, for taking the time. It was wonderful. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And it's just, it's a subject I'm passionate about, tennis. It's just a love of a lifetime. Absolutely. Thanks, Jose. Thank you for listening to Vita Tennis. What a beautiful conversation with such a passionate tennis pro. Jose's book is coming out real soon. Just make sure to check out the show notes for the links to his book. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I would really, really love to hear from you. Let me know what you think of the podcast so far. Is there a specific topic you'd like me to cover or guests you'd like to hear from? My email is vitatennispodcast at gmail.com. If you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from, that would be awesome. And even better, if you like this content, share with a friend or fellow pro. Lastly, you can follow Vita Tennis on social media, on Facebook as Vita Tennis, and on Instagram at Vita Tennis Podcast. See you next week.